Welcome to SECC. We pray that you are blessed today as you listen. We're looking at Matthew chapter 5 verse 4 this morning. Um, But before we do anything, let me read it to you. So this is what Jesus said in chapter 5 of Matthew verse 4. Let me read it slowly with a pause in the middle. Blessed are those who mourn. If Jesus was a slow speaker, you'd think, what? Blessed are those who mourn for theirs, for they will be comforted. Or try it with the word happy, which you can do. Happy are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. We're talking of the Beatitudes uh, in these couple of weeks leading up to Easter under the title, Things Jesus Said. And uh, we're just sort of getting ready for Easter. Easter's soon be upon us, uh, that weekend of hope in the face of death and darkness. And these Beatitudes start the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is a three-chapter sermon by Jesus, probably not given all at the same time, probably given uh, various, repeated at various points over his ministry. Um, so perhaps a collection of some of his teachings, not necessarily one long talk and he almost certainly was delivered it over and over again to various people in various places but they start with these beatitudes which is a strange little uh, almost poetic beginning to this sermon and, uh, and we said last week how each of these is an attitude fit for God's coming kingdom. The Bible tells us that this world is passing away. We invest a lot in this world. We, wanna, we want everything to be shiny and new the whole time. We worry about when things break and things rust and go moldy. And that this world is passing away. The Bible is very clear that this world has a shelf life. And the Bible invites us through faith in Jesus to invest, not here, not now, actually to be poor here, to give everything away for God's glory, but to invest in his coming kingdom. In fact, more than that, not to live away the way this world tells us to live, but to live as if that kingdom has already arrived, because it has in one sense already arrived. It arrived with Christ. The kingdom of God is here. Repent and follow me. He said things like that to his early disciples. So in a sense, the kingdom of God has arrived in each of our hearts, but it will be fulfilled when Jesus returns and New Jerusalem comes out of heaven like a bride um, ready for the bridegroom. And so uh, we're invited through these beatitudes to live not just in a happy way in this world, but to live as if God is already fully reigning with his full kingdom realized. We said last week that these beatitudes seem upside down in our culture. How can it be good to have poverty of spirit? This week, how can it be good to mourn? How is mourning a good thing? We try and avoid pain and suffering at all costs. But we said that actually what seems upside down to the world actually is right side up for God. That the world is actually is what is upside down. That God is the right way around. So the culture would listen to what I've just said, blessed are those who mourn. And they would say, no, that's not what it should be. It should be something like this. Blessed are the happy because they have managed to avoid mourning. Blessed are the happy because they have managed to avoid pain and suffering. And isn't that how we try to live our lives? Sorrow is around every corner, so we do our absolute best to filter it out in every possible way we can. We move house, we change job, we sometimes change churches, we change relationships, we do everything we possibly can. We go down the gym or we avoid the gym. We smoke things we shouldn't smoke, drink things we shouldn't drink or avoid all those things at all costs. We do everything we possibly can to avoid suffering and pain. And then Jesus Christ speaks with a wonderful piece of honesty that you're going to mourn 
And it's possible to be blessed in that morning, for they will be comforted. Life is full of sorrows, and so we do our best to avoid it for fear that when sorrow comes, we won't be able to stand it at all. A bit like Job in Job chapter 2, verse 13, having lost everything, his friends walk towards him. And when they get to Job at the beginning of that book, they just sit there because they have no idea what to say to him because he seems so hopeless. And we fear that scenario, don't we? That the world will get on top of us so much that we will have nowhere else to go except down. So Jesus is explaining a wonderful truth, a wonderful reality that is so amazing. So amazing that even the most broken person amongst us can get up and dance down the road just like Al Pacino, if you saw that clip this week. Thank you. <laughs> Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Such a short statement, but so wonderfully put. They will be comforted. Christ offers to comfort those who are broken, to heal those who are wounded. And if you've ever seen a truly transformed believer, then you'll know exactly this verse and the power of it. Years ago, uh, we went to the one event up in Lincoln, and uh, a long time, it feels like a million years ago now, uh, before COVID. And I remember standing in the big tents, and I think there were thousands of people in there, and uh, there's a, gr- a Christian organization called Patel, which some of you will know. Uh, Patel work with drug, and alcoholic, uh, drug addicts and alcoholics, and they get them off uh, drug and alcohol dependency, and they just change their lives. They're an amazing organization that do fantastic things. But of course, they get introduced to some very interesting characters. And I stood behind a line of these men from Patel, and I've never been more frightened of my brothers in Christ in my entire life. Not because they did anything to frighten me, just to be clear, but they were so tough looking and so scary looking. Noses were like that, ears were over here, uh, everything was kind of shaved, and they were massive as well. They're huge, stocky blokes, and they were t- talking to each other in a slightly rougher way. So I'm from Essex, but the problem is I've been, I've been middle-classed, I think, by Sawbridge Road. So I found myself thinking, ooh, ooh. <laughs> Sorry, Sorry. Um, no comment. Um, but I thought, how wonderful is that? Each one of these men would have been right at the bottom of the barrel. Each one of these men would have stared darkness in the face and embraced it more and more and more. Each one of these men would have been dangerous and scary and rotten to the core, you might say. And yet, at some point, they mourned that lifestyle. They mourned that drug dependency, that alcoholism. They mourned their anger. They mourned their broken relationship. They mourned their aggression. And they turned it over to Jesus, and Jesus comforted them. Jesus brought them back from the brink and into his kingdom. And this morning, that can be you. So let's look at this verse in a little bit more detail um, before we break for coffee a little bit later on. But this is another attitude for God's kingdom. But this is more than a verse for those who are having a hard time. You might think, oh, I'm having a hard time. That's nice to know that uh, I've had a rough week at work. God's going to comfort me. Of course he will. But it's more than that. Actually, what this verse is, is the attitude you need to enter the coming kingdom of God. We'll come back to that in a minute. What's wonderful about these Beatitudes, and particularly this one, is that if you were a Jew listening to verse 4 of chapter 5, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted, you would have thought, hang on a minute, 
This is no ordinary rabbi. This is no ordinary teacher of the law and the Old Testament. Your mind would immediately go back to Isaiah 61, and you would think, hang on a minute. I remember that scroll that I heard in the synagogue all those years at the temple, I should say, uh, growing up. That messianic promise, this promise in Isaiah 61 of this king, this Messiah that's going to come and make all things well, all things good. And your mind would immediately remember verses 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and the release of prisoners from the darkness to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. You would think, hang on a minute, this is no ordinary guy speaking to me. This is linguistically someone letting me know that he's the Messiah. They were waiting for someone to come who was going to set them free, who was going to give them comfort in their mourning. And here is Jesus of Nazareth saying, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And then perhaps their minds might have gone backwards to Psalm 23, verse 4, when they talked about the valley of the shadow of death, saying this, Even though I walk through the darkest valley or the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Jesus is drawing all of that messianic hope, and it's like he's saying in a very subtle way, I finally arrived. This is the one. I am the one you need to follow. And not that it was written then, but much later on, John will have a vision on the island of Patmos. And at the end of his vision, the book of Revelation, verse 21, 1 to 4, he will write these words. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. That word for wipe is a once and for all word that God at the end of all things when he brings us into his kingdom if we know Christ as our saviour is going to take his holy finger I'm imagining this bit this is an artistic license so forgive me and that one wipe will wipe away any possibility of crying ever again because there will be nothing to mourn over in God's kingdom you can see why God wants us to live as if that kingdom's fully here now because that's the hope we have a world, a life with no tears and no mourning we will be comforted so coming back to that word mourning mourn what you might ask well there's lots of things to mourn i will make one joke if you're a manchester city supporter you of course will be mourning the fact that no matter how bad tottenham hotspur are you cannot beat us for love nor money wolves and southampton are clearly much better than manchester city and there we are you should have paid more money for harry kane anyway carrying on sorry um, but there are lots of things to mourn. I, I shouldn't make jokes about football, um, especially as they come back to me the following week. <laughs> um, but there are lots of things to mourn in life. We mourn loss, the loss of a loved one, the loss of a job, the loss of our health, whatever it might be, loss of a relationship, the loss of our freedom. We mourn death, the death of a loved one, death of a child, of a parent, a friend, 
And that mourning can last for years and years and years. We mourn the pain that we've suffered. Perhaps we mourn the, the pain that we've caused, that sense of regret. Lord, I wish I'd never done it. We mourn our mistakes. If only I could go back and do that one thing differently. That one thing differently, I would be so much happier now. But what's interesting is that whilst I believe that word mourning can refer to all of that, Jesus is referring to a different kind of mourning, a mourning for something else. Actually, what's being referred to here is not mourning a situation you find yourself in, but the action of disobeying God, of doing something God has said explicitly not to do. Christians call that sin. Uh, If you're not familiar, you may not use the word sin. It's generally a word that only Christians use. But actually, to sin is to take what God has said and do the opposite. To know the good God calls us to do and either not do it or rebel against him and do the complete opposite of what he wants. Sin comes in all shapes and sizes. Big sins are just as significant as little ones. All have the same effect of destroying our relationship with our God, our maker. Putting us against him rather than with him and for him. And in our culture, sadly, we have lost the understanding of this word sin. Our culture is very good at excusing it's bad, excusing our wrongdoing. My father-in-law calls it blame culture. It started in the 90s. Everything seems to have started in the 90s. In the 90s, they said everything started in the 60s. And I think before then, they probably blamed some other time. But in about the 90s, it began to be this world where actually it wasn't my fault. It was your fault. It's not my fault that you tripped over that step. I left that thing that you walked into. It's your own fault for not, not looking. Or it's someone else's fault for not putting a sign around it. Whatever happens, we manage to blame other people. We're very good when we do wrong, actually finding it to be somebody else's fault. It's not my fault, we say. It can't possibly be me. It's got to be someone else. And I will do everything I can, turn over every stone, read every article to find someone I can blame. As long as that person isn't me. And when that doesn't work and we sin, what do we do? We stop talking about wrong and right and we just redefine it. And we say, well, actually, yeah, I did it. But this is the real me. So you just have to lump it. Yeah, I'm that guy. (laughs) So that's my choice. That's my truth. And you can't tell me it's bad or good. Christians want to talk in terms of wrong and right. Because there's a God who's holy and a God of wrong and right. And God has a clear idea of what's good and what's bad. And if we redefine what's bad and redefine what's good, all we do is fool ourselves. We often overcompensate for our wrongdoing when we should be asking for God's perfect forgiveness for it. And the Bible is very clear that all of us sin and fall short of the glory of God. That this sin that we commit is the root issue in all of us. It breaks our relationship with our maker and each other. Why might there be war in the Ukraine? You can blame NATO, you can blame Putin, but it's the sin that we're all born with that's taken root and grown and grown and grown and grown and grown. It's the lack of Christ is the reason we stand on the verge of any war. We choose to ignore God and turn from him and our sin has its way with us and no amount of redefining will free us from its clutches. And so the mourning in this verse isn't a feeling of sadness that something has happened to you. It's a mourning of an understanding of who you are and what you have done in the sight of God. It's saying to God, I am a bad person. I have done bad things and I am sorry. 
Lord, I mourn that you said, forgive my enemy, and I hated them more. Lord, I mourn that you said, do not be angry, and I was more angry. Lord, you said, you said, don't look at a woman lustfully, Lord, and I looked at as many as I possibly could. You said, don't be greedy, and Lord, I've amassed so much money, I don't care what, I don't know what to do with it. But when you get to that point, you say, Lord, it's wrong, I shouldn't do it, I'm sorry. That's the mourning Jesus is speaking of. And what's the comfort? The comfort is that moment when Christ then picks you up in your broken pieces and says, come home, I'm going to re-put you back together. Comfort is more than support and a friendly arm around the shoulder. The comfort of Christ is transformation of your very soul, a restoration of our being, and only forgiveness of God can take what's ruined and make it whole, or what's mourning and give it comfort. So two final things that really struck me uh, in this verse. Two words, actually, the word for and the word those. You see, it says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. There's a wonderful, powerful promise here that when we stand before God and we say, Lord, this is me, all my sin, this is all my brokenness, this is the bad that I've done, I'm sorry, and I feel awful about it, save me. That word for gives you more hope than anything else. They will be comforted. When we stand before God and we say, God, I'm a mess and I'm broken, help me. There is never a moment when God will not move to save you and comfort you. 100% of the time, he answers the prayer, please forgive me. There is never a time when we ask forgiveness that God says, no, you've had your quota. You've got to go to premium level and then I will talk. No, every time we mourn, every time we're comforted. And I like the word those as well. Blessed are those who mourn. In other words, anybody. We tend to think Christ is for the Christians. There's no such thing as a Christian before you know Jesus Christ. (laughs) Christ is for everybody. And the those in this sentence is every human being who's ever lived and breathed and broken God's ways. And those that come to him can be forgiven and comforted. So I'm going to stop there. And I just wondered if you just shut your eyes for a moment. Because we just want to just commit what we've said this morning to prayer. And just shut your eyes for a second. The whole point of this verse, the whole point is to encourage us to do the one thing culture tells us not to do. We should accept our brokenness, accept our wrong, accept our darkness and not live with it, not redefine it, not blame it on someone else. But before a holy, loving, just God, say to him, Lord, I am so sorry. Forgive me in the knowledge that he will forgive and he will comfort you. And we're going to do this again later, but just in this moment, why not just have an honest moment between you and God? Maybe you've never, ever said sorry for anything you've done. You may even be thinking, why should I? But in this moment, just think of that thing that you've done. We all carry our shame, all of us. And just in this moment, just say, Lord, this is my shame. And Lord, I mourn. I mourn that I've become this person. I'm sorry. Just do that now in your heart. Father God, we read in your word that godly grief brings freedom. The worst to that effect, that kind of grief with no hope, Lord, destroys us. And so we try to avoid it. But Lord, when we feel this sense of grief that before a holy God, we have not lived how you call us to, 
And Lord, when we come to you, the source of our salvation, the anchor of our soul, Lord, we're able to find comfort, Lord, in our brokenness. So Father, hear our prayers this morning. Father, hear our honesty. Lord, we don't want to name the things that we do, the things that we think, the things that we've said. We don't want to name it. We're ashamed. But Lord, you call us to be brave. You call us to say, Lord, this is the thing I've done. And Lord, I pray that you would just speak forgiveness over every person in this room or at home. Father, please pour out your Holy Spirit upon us. Lord, even now as I pray, I pray that you would lift a weight off our shoulders. But Lord, we would know the comfort of Christ. That, Lord, that comfort of the staff that walks us through the valley of the shadow of death even. May we know what it is to be restored, Lord. Not redefined, but restored. It's so much better. Our Lord, I lift this to you now. And I ask for your hand of blessing to pour out your power now and your spirit now. In Jesus' name, amen.